politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The Conservative Review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots, Paul Revere's and Minutemen standing at the ready to fight for liberty here at the Conservative Review Podcast. This is your host, Daniel Horowitz, back in the house Tuesday. Um, lots going on on the scientific front, the legal front, the fiscal policy front. You got to follow our Facebook fan page, Horowitz Citizen Sanctuary, my Twitter account, at RMConservative. As always, you could email me, dhorowitz at blazemedia.com, and certainly, certainly get your $30 off your Blaze TV annual subscription promo code Daniel. This is one of the few networks that is actually giving you the truth and is not scared of being censored. And speaking of being censored, this religion of lockdown and the policy outcomes they've been able to achieve as a result of it is so precious to the political governing class that we're actually at the point where they are openly taking down scholarly articles, they're taking down videos, anything that is damaging to them. And the more damaging you are to their cause, the more they will censor you. Late last night, I broke the news on Twitter as I was writing my morning column. I was trying to link back to the video from Dr. Erickson, um, him and his colleague, those two uh, emergency room doctors in Bakersfield, California, that put out this riveting hour-long press conference with a local ABC affiliate that just denuded the government in front of everyone's eyes, just completely demonstrated that not only are the lockdowns uh, gratuitous at this point, they're actually counterintuitive. They're actually counterintuitive. And it's like after hearing that, for most people, their view will never be the same. It got over 5 million hits. Well, suddenly it was taken down, and they said, I got a message, it violated our community, um, our community rules, our community values. So I put that out on Twitter. It's blown up now. Um, I hear the ABC affiliate has uh, appealed their decision. But what's bizarre is it wasn't even like Erickson put it up. It wasn't his private video. This was ABC News there. The local ABC 23 affiliate put it up, and they took it down. It is just so bizarre. But again, it demonstrates the power of truth. Like a ray of light in a completely dark room, it just takes one light to completely, completely end that darkness. And that's why they have to shut that door, and they can't allow any truth in. Well, there aren't many truth-tellers, but they are growing, but there is one who has been here since the beginning. Amid all the bad things that come out of social media, one of the good things is meeting very terrific people. And I've really been honored to meet a lot of very thoughtful people. I've become friends with them simply from meeting them on Twitter. And one of the people if you are not following, is Alex Berenson. you got to go to at Alex Berenson on Twitter. It is one Twitter feed that is just a weapon of mass instruction. It is unbelievable. Um, you know, Normally, you need articles and videos and podcasts to learn from people, but from, you could learn more from his Twitter feed than any articles. Um, so you have to make sure you uh, are following him on Twitter. He is a former New York Times reporter. He's a novelist. He's written... 12 novels, two nonfiction books, one terrific book on Tell Your Children About the Dangers of Marijuana. Um, very well-rounded, very well-read, um, prolific writer, has covered the world extensively um, for the New York Times throughout his tenure there. 
And someone like that really has a firm grasp on following a train of facts, a fact narrative. And he's been doing that from day one. And I said to myself, I got to get him on the show to answer some some key questions about the basics of this virus to spread his truth far and wide. So with no further ado, hey, Alex, thanks so much for waiting on the line. Really appreciate you joining us today. You know, Daniel, it's a pleasure. And, uh, you know, I'd like to say in terms of the Twitter feed, one of the reasons it's it's worked, and I, uh, I hope it has worked, is that so many people now reach out to me. And, uh, you know, they might be physicians or they might be, uh, you know, police officers or they might be parents or, you know, just, just uh, you know, people in business. People are, uh, people are affected by this, obviously. And, they have stories to tell and they have data and they can point to, you know, they can point to information that, you know, might be public or might be, it might not be public, but even if it's public, it might be a paper that I haven't seen. And so, so people are helping me. And, and, and so I'm able to post, you know, I, I heard from a physician in, in, in Michigan this morning who said our drive through testing center is running close to empty. And almost at the same time, somebody from Virginia sent me a picture of a testing center that's running close to empty. And so I was able to, you know, put those two things together, put them up. And it's almost like writing a story that somebody else has written for me. Now, I, in general, I will check people's credentials. Certainly, if they claim to be, uh, you know, physicians or something like that. But, but, uh, but in some cases, if it's a parent, I don't even feel necessarily need to do that. So because, you know, this is just a person telling a story to me. And, you know, if 10 people tell stories, I'm going to assume that they're not just reaching out to me to gaslight me or anything. But obviously, if they're telling me, you know, really, uh, you know, important technical information, I need to know they are who they say they are. Um, so, so in any case, um, you know, this is one reason why I, I feel like I've been able to do some good is there's been this uh, magnifier effect because people are reaching out to me. No, absolutely. Iron sharpens iron, and and that's why I've really called on people to join in a Facebook group among my fans because I've learned so much as well. There's a limit to how much I could see. I miss a story. I miss a statement. I miss a a study, um, another serology test or something like that. So there's so much you and I could talk about. So, Alex, let me start off with something going on now, and maybe we could work backwards to reconstruct the narrative. Um, One of the things that I'm very puzzled by is that clearly the number of infections, the number of deaths at least, uh, peaked, the hospitalizations peaked a few weeks ago. If you would have told me in early April we'd be sitting here at the end of April, I would have expected the numbers to have dropped even further as we've seen in other countries. I have my theories for it, but I'm curious why – why is it that the number of deaths, while relatively down, still seem to be pretty high? What's going on in that secret sauce? Well, well, I think we, you know, I think that's a very good question. We don't know how much the coding criteria is contributing to the number of deaths uh, or, or the number of reported deaths. So, in other words, you'll see deaths reported that someone was in a hospice, someone died of a drug overdose in in one case in in. Uh, in California recently, um, it's clear that the criteria is extremely loose for who we're, who we're including as a COVID death. Um, and, you know, you look at the number of people over 80, over 90, in some cases over 100 who've died, it's pretty tough to distinguish between people who are dying with and of COVID in some of those cases. So, so, 
So, I mean, I don't want to say that, you know, this is not a conspiracy. It's being done openly, but clearly uh, we are trying to catch every possible person who might have died with COVID or, uh, or of COVID. And possibly in some cases, we're catching people who died with COVID. And the other thing I'd say is that it's pretty clear that the ventilator strategy was a mistake uh, early on, that, you know, the idea that we're going to aggressively put people on vents, that we need all these vents and we need to intubate people. Uh, in New York City, especially, um, that I, I don't know if that led to extra deaths. Those people might have died anyway, but it pretty clearly didn't save anybody. And the, and the mortality yeah. rates are extremely high on people who are ventilated. Sure. No. And, and I wonder if there's a few other things going on here, too, that it seems like a lot of the deaths, um, it's hard to tell the trend line because they're not necessarily new fatalities. Let's say we that, report. That's right. Aren't they really backfilling them? So if you have an April 29th report from New York City, okay, another 500 deaths, a good number of them could really be from two, three weeks ago or whenever. The, the, yes, that's quite clear. That I mean, in, in, the state, in Massachusetts, for example, at one point they were saying, you know, we were reporting deaths back through, you know, it was mid, it was sort of mid to late March, and that was in, in mid-April. So now they've stopped saying exactly what dates the deaths are from. I think you. I think if you really want to, you might be able to go and look at the dates that they say the death occurred and try to figure it out on a daily basis where they're backfilling, but uh, but they're not being quite as transparent as as they were. So um, so yes, that's happening too. There's a there's a lot of deaths of older people where there may have been a COVID test uh, performed or there may just not have been a COVID test performed, but they're now saying uh, you know these these are COVID deaths or probable COVID deaths. Sure. And I'm going to have an article out in a couple of minutes, might have even come out from our editor um, about the Illinois um, public health director who openly said that even if there is a clear alternate cause of death, as long as they tested positive, they put that down as a COVID death. I, I, I felt she was the clearest of anyone in owning up to that. It was unbelievable. You'll see. I'll send it to you. The video is truly astounding so i mean that would literally mean if you got hit by a car if you were in a car accident came in and died in the er from it but you happen to be test positive which so many people do now i mean that's part of our point what I, you know then you would be added to it and i i thought like i'm curious what you think about this thought obviously there's the hospitals have an incentive to drive up the reimbursements obviously the politicians and the media have an incentive because you want to make this worse in order to justify more of a lockdown and all their you know ancillary agenda surrounding it but i thought there's a third more psychological part of this that is understandable based on what the media was scaring people with if you're a doctor march early april you're thinking the guy has covid it's like He's got Ebola, like you know, it's 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 very rare, and but it's got a high fatality rate, and he died. Well, it's, it's got to be that. But ironically, from the serology test, now that we know it could be tens of millions, fifty million, God knows how many. We know it's certainly at least a quarter in New York City alone have it, have had it, and yet commensurately, the death rate is much lower. So now you have to revisit. Isn't it true that you have to revisit that? Okay, you might have tested positive. You might have even had some signs of respiratory stuff. But a lot of people die from a lot of things every day, and with the fatality rate now confirmed to be that low, do do we? We've debated the denominator a lot, but do we know the numerator? Well, so so yes, and there's 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 yet another problem, which is that um, you know certainly in a place like New York, uh, people were trading the flu and strep throat in these very crowded emergency rooms, and there's actually a very interesting study out of France that 
um, you know, I highlighted because it showed that, uh, you know, the risk of transmission from a child who, in fact, who got infected was almost was, was actually zero in this case to uh, to other school children. Um, but the other thing it showed was, although this child didn't pass uh, uh, SARS-CoV-2 to anybody, there were large rates of influenza among these kids. And so and so clearly, um, you know, by the way, like the respiratory burden, if you have both the flu and influenza, not to mention something like, you know, strep throat at the same time is going to be more on you. So uh, but, you know, we, we sort of we're, we're ignoring that, too. We're just saying, well, we're not going to bother to test for the flu. We're going to test for a COVID and COVID alone or, you know, SARS-CoV-2 and SARS-CoV-2 alone. Um, you know, one of the other unfortunate things about the death counts is. Uh, you know, it's it's been clear for a little while that because of the issues around coding, all-cause mortality is probably the best thing to look at. But there's even a problem with that now. And the problem is that we have so discouraged people from going to the emergency room. Um, you know, if you have crushing chest pain or, uh, you know, you, you suddenly have a massive headache where you could be having a stroke, there are some people out there who are just, who are afraid to go and they are dying. And, you know, you, I hear this from cardiologists, like there, there literally are people probably who are dying because they're afraid to go to the ER. And so even all-cause mortality may be up a little bit, not just because of COVID, but because of these follow-on effects on our medical system. No, absolutely, absolutely. The transplant patients, cancer patients, yep. um, and it's yep. both. It's both things that are shut down by the government or things that even if they're not officially shut down, like certainly not ERs, but just the panic porn has scared people to such a degree that we're seeing the drop. So, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. It's getting very confusing because I was just thinking today that I think we had – I felt we had a pretty good grasp on the pattern of the virus. Six to eight weeks, no matter what you do, it seems to peak in most areas, and then it plunges. But in America, it doesn't seem to be pl- – some areas, yeah, but some areas it's kind of like you know it's peaked, but it's going along. And that's what I wonder if we could even trust – that numerator after after I'm hearing some of this stuff, um, because what you're telling me is something very interesting. It's not just the obvious ones. You know, someone comes in with hypertension or a heart attack, but like so many people in America happens to have COVID, they'll put it down, and that's clearly false. But you're saying, you know, you could have respiratory infection symptoms, and it kind of looks like it. Well, you know, he had symptoms, he tests positive for COVID, and he died. Well, is that open and shut? Well, the flu and regular pneumonia don't stop. So that's another thing that could be mixed with that. Am I getting you right? Yeah. I mean, again, I don't, this is, this is speculation, right? So I like to distinguish between what we know and what we don't know. And we, we don't know, uh, you know, how frequently this is occurring and we don't even know how frequently people are staying at home and, you know, symptoms that might otherwise get them to the ER. And we don't know, you know, how many people with, let's say, uh, you know, cancer, even, you know, if it's an aggressive, fast-moving cancer, you know, in, in a month or six weeks, if you don't get treatment, you can die from that. Um, so, so, so we don't know, but, but I do know that doctors are talking about this. And, and I do know that this issue of co-infection is real. And clearly, when you, when you send a bunch of sick people to an emergency room, uh, uh, they're going to tra- and they have to wait hours or you know or days in some cases it was re- you know when it was really bad in New York City to get treatment um, they're going to trade viruses with each other no 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 doubt about it and when you look at the transmission the trading v- viruses uh, highly den- densely populated areas 
One of the things that I think we've all been trying to grope in the dark, because government certainly won't help with this. If they have information, they're certainly not sharing it. But from day one, we were saying, how do you flatten a curve that we don't know when it began? How do you stop a spread that has already spread? So now that we have the serology test, so a lot of people are focusing on the fact that it demonstrates a much greater share of the population had it, and therefore the fatality rate is really you know, much closer, well under you know, half a percent in most places, and you know it's not nearly as deadly as they were making it out to be. That's one thing. But there's another half of this, which is when did it spread? In other words, we know that at least 750,000 people came in, both Americans and Chinese nationals, at least from when we know for sure the virus spread in China um, throughout December, January, even a little bit after the so-called shutoff. God knows how many came in from Europe. We did nothing as a society in January and February. We had you know packed Mardi Gras, packed uh, Chinese Lunar Year celebrations. So the question is, isn't it inconceivable that this wasn't spreading January, December, some point way before the beginning of March? So, I mean, I, I don't know about December. It was clearly spreading in January and February. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, there are cases in the U.S. that have shown it. Here, here's a tricky thing, which is that, and I think that like, even the epidemiologists have a really hard time with this, R is not constant. Okay, R changes. R meaning the number of people that one infected person infects. Okay, so, so, so we talk about that like it's some number that comes, you know, from the sky and never changes, but that's not true at all. It changes both regionally in a place like New York City is going to be higher and it changes based on events and it changes based on people's behavior. So, so, you know, I I mean, I I think that clearly this was spreading in in January, in January and February in the U.S. It was clearly there was some community transmission. But what people don't understand is how relatively small changes in, in the transmission rate can accumulate very quickly. In other words, because because th- this part of it is exponential, a three an R of three where one person infects three other people, and the and the timing of, of that is every four days produces a very very different cycle than an R of two with a six day transmission period. So, and how different is it? It's the difference between one person leading to ten thousand infections in a month and one person leading to thirty in a month. Those two small changes that I just mentioned produce that. And so, and so, I mean, I think anybody who's paying close attention can see, yes, this is not that uh, dangerous a virus, although it, it does seem to be more dangerous than the flu, and certainly to older people it's more dangerous than the flu. But what can happen is you have these super spreading events, like in New York City in, you know, in early to mid-March. And when that happens, there's a real risk of a, you know, of a, of a, of a lot of deaths and of a crash of the, or at least of a severe strain of the healthcare system. I mean, I, you know, I don't think anybody could argue that the system in New York didn't come under severe strain in late March. So, so but, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Why, why in March, if this is so contagious and it spreads so quickly, and we know we had it in January, how so, come so, it took so, that so long? Let's say, yeah. Okay, let's say that you know it was spreading at some reasonable rate in New York City, and twenty. And this is, I'm making up numbers. Okay, let's be clear. I'm making up the numbers. Sure. Twenty-five thousand people were infected at the beginning of March. Okay, if the R somehow got to four, for for even two cycles, that twenty-five thousand becomes four hundred thousand in ten or twelve days. Okay, and then if it's three, 
for the next cycle, you're at over a million. That's how the math works. That's where you get the exponential growth. And why does that happen? Well, it's pretty clear why it happens. If you tell people that they're, you know, that they're all sick and they all need to go to the ER and they stand in lines and then they go home to their families <laughs> and are locked up for 24 hours, you, you produce this thing, this cycle. And by the way, one of the other things is the people who are most likely to die from this are the people who are least likely to be outside, right? They're sick. They're old. They have comorbidities. So, so what you're actually doing is you're kind of driving the virus to them, right? You're, you're, you're encouraging them to call 911. So healthy asymptomatic, uh, you know, EMTs can give them the virus. You're forcing them out of their homes because they're so scared. So they go to the ER. So this is why, you know, and there's a whole different argument about the lockdowns and why they may be counterproductive. But this is this is basically at the core of that case, that because this because the real danger here is that, that is of this explosive growth and that it, you know, and that it affects these vulnerable people who are unlikely to be out under most circumstances. When you pursue a strategy of frightening people, you you have a counterproductive effect. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think like what I've seen from taking everything in totality, and I want to know if you agree with my assertion, is that it looks like, especially as we the numbers keep getting driven down by the growing denominator, that in most situations and in most areas, it looks like the fatality rate, meaning the percentage of those who die who had the virus, will be pretty close to the flu. But the reason why this is more problematic, albeit in our view, I think not justifying a lockdown, but more problematic is because it spreads so quickly. So even if the fatality rate is, is, is the same as the flu, you're going to have that surge quicker like we saw in Wuhan they weren't prepared it came out of nowhere it's not that it was like Ebola it was the black plague but you know the percentage that you would have even in a flu like that that's number one and number two is a flu is confined mainly to a few months in terms of the high numbers so this you know let's say you have a flu level for eight months or however many months this goes on um, it's more prone to um, surviving at least in somewhat hotter weather. I guess it's still subject to debate when it will end or how it will end. And then number three, there's obviously no vaccine. Like in the in the nursing homes, um, every uh, healthcare worker has to be vaccinated for the flu. So you don't have that transmission. Whereas here, you know, you don't, it, it might not be that much more fatal um, inherently, but you don't have a vaccine. So it's going to be spread to them. So, and, so, so yeah. I mean, I, I, I would caution again saying that it you know that that it's that the number is is comparable to the flu okay? sure. because the flu number usually gets quoted as one in uh, a thousand zero point one and there are people who say well it's actually even lower than that because there's a fair number of people who uh, you know are totally asymptomatic sure. when they get the flu um, uh, you know and this is more like the the, the number that that I generally, you know, say publicly, and this is, you know, it's an estimate, and I, I, I'm not an epidemiologist, and people can disagree, but it's an estimate based on the data that we have, is in the 0 0.2, 0 0.25 to 0 0.4 range. So that's exactly. one in 250 people who get it, maybe one in 400. Now, the thing is, the United States is a big country, so when you multiply that by 300 million people, you can get to a big number. Although obviously not everybody's going to get get it. Sure. Um, he, but but but. But here's what I would say. The, it's the, it's the, to me, it's the one in 400, you know, one in 300, one in 250. Are we shutting down the world for that? Forget whether it's less or more than the flu. And forget the sure. fact that in Britain in the late 90s, 
um, you know, the flu had a fatality rate that was that high. Sure. You know, it's funny if you actually, if you, funny is not the right word, but, but, you know, flu death rates have been going down over time, but they used to be pretty high, especially before, you know, there was really good winter heating and, you know, people used coal. A lot of people died from the flu in the fifties through the nineties, you know, especially in Britain and the rest of Europe. So, so the question is, if the death rate here is one in 250 to one in 400, let's stop comparing it to the flu. And the average age of death is in the low 80s. And the average person who dies has a longer life than the average American life expectancy, which is true. What are we doing? Why are we shutting down society? Sure. Why are we? And that's not to say we shouldn't do help, you know, protect people from this. It's to say, why are we destroying the education for tens of millions of kids? Why are we destroying the economy? Why are we putting kids, forcing them into their homes, in some cases with abusive parents? At best, they're not playing with other kids. They're getting depressed. At worst, you know, we have a real problem with child abuse in this country. It's making it worse. And, so to and, me, and, and the kids, you know, by the way, you make the point with the kids is even more because, for example, Miami-Dade County, they came out with it. It's going to be something like an a average of 0.18% uh, fatality rate there. But but the thing with them, and I think really all the serology studies, unless I'm wrong about that, but I know there I confirmed, and certainly in New York City, they didn't test people under 18. So I think the I think we would all agree that un, for that K through 12, you know, 12th grade school age kids, is going to be some order pretty substantially lower than that. Well, that's not clear because kids. I mean, kids may get it and clear it very quickly. So, I mean, but, but I, I, again, like you can get uh -huh. that's a detail that to me is irrelevant. Like what you want is to focus on the big picture here. Sure. And the big picture is, yes, this this um, you know this virus is real. Yes, it kills some people. Yes, it probably kills more people than the flu will. Okay, does that mean that what we're doing makes any sense? Well, because my, my issue is n not just in terms of the balancing of interests. Oh, well, let's sacrifice this number of lives for this number of other lives in the economy, yada, yada. My question is, once you let something in your country to this degree, which we clearly were doing for months, it's not like we're Iceland or Israel, which is kind of small, one airport, and you know we let it in. Aren't those lives baked to a certain extent? I mean— could you even prevent that? And even if you would lock everyone down, if you don't achieve herd immunity at some point, aren't you going to eventually have the second and third waves that keep coming and the people that are prone to die from it will likely die from it? So, you know, you can look there. Hopefully over time, uh, treatments improve. Hopefully over time, you know, maybe we get to some moderately effective vaccine like we have with the flu. So so those are arguments for delay. They're not very good arguments to me, but they're but they're like uh -huh. maybe the only reasonable arguments. But uh, I would say that even even taking those arguments into account, we can easily try to protect the people who are most at risk. And frankly, the universal lockdown strategy cuts against that because it diverts government time and attention and resources yeah from the place it needs to be, which is let's protect the people in nursing homes. So, so even if the lockdowns worked, which they probably don't, there's really bad, uh, you know, there's really bad consequences to them. The fact that they don't work and the fact that arguably in New York, you can make a coherent case that they made matters worse. is sort of the icing on this cake. And then, and then the cherry on top of the icing on the cake is it, is it the people who I call team apocalypse, the people who've been on the lockdown train all along, won't admit any of this 
and constantly keep coming up with new reasons to justify extending the lockdowns. So first it was hospital system surge. Okay, that's a legitimate reason, right? We don't want every hospital in the country to collapse. Well, that hasn't happened. Then it was way two weeks. Well, guess what? We're more than a month in. There has been no surge. There will be no surge. Then it was second wave. Now, I don't even really know what that means because a second wave can happen any time. So does that mean we have to continue the lockdowns forever or until there's a vaccine? And then it was, we need more tests. Well, so this is the thing that I've been reporting on today. The testing sites we have right now are, are not being used because, because there are so few people with symptoms right now that match COVID. Cause you know what? It's late April and things are, you know, the flu is dying down and, mm-hmm. and the transmission of this is probably also settling down. We don't have enough people who want to be tested right now. So, so what are we waiting for? We're waiting for some mythical number of tests. And then what are we going to do? We're going to test everybody every day. I, I mean, I, look, you're laughing, but people are talking, they're talking about immunity passports. They're talking about all this stuff that is basically completely unconstitutional. I mean, none of it makes any sense. No, sure. And, and part of what bothered me from day one, there were two things that I said to myself, oh my gosh, this is coming from a very dark place. So number one was the attitude. It's like you're describing. It wasn't like genuinely, scientifically, they felt this was the best thing. It's a necessary evil. Kind of like the churches. You know, if your local church would put out a... uh, uh, a letter and say, look, with a heavy heart, we're, you know, we feel we have to close. No, they, they were enjoying it. It was like, we must do this. We're going to do this. And they're looking for every excuse to continue. You would think they would recognize the severity of it, that even if you felt it was a necessary evil, you, albeit it would be evil, and you would kind of act accordingly. And there's certainly no degree of humility there. They seem to really want this outcome. And number two, you would see every single policy outcome is a left-wing outcome. So lock everyone up, but let out the criminals. And, you know, de-incarceration is something they've always wanted. I mean, it's a very hot issue. They've wanted to do it forever. And by the way, Alex, isn't that funny? So the ACLU says, you don't understand. There's going to be, quote, viral explosions in a petri dish of prison this but but now we know from the serology that this thing was spreading for months so based on their own assumption that cake should have been baked and then now they're bringing them into the general population which according to their own logic would have a smaller percentage inf- infected it, it just well, what, what, it's amazing so i thought hey, i i i gotta go pretty soon I, we could talk sure. about this all day but Worse than that, uh, you know, there's now this data coming out of some of the prisons where there's been widespread testing, and tons of people have it and are totally asymptomatic. The, the vast majority of prisoners who get this are asymptomatic. I mean, 95% in Ohio, 90% in North Carolina. And I'll say one, just one other thing about the prisoners. Again, like, there's just no end to talking about the various ramifications of this. Um, amazingly, and everybody expected that when the lockdowns hit, Crime would drop dramatically. Not domestic violence, obviously. Not child abuse. Not crimes that people are locked crime. up at home. Street crime, but yeah. people, street crime, right? Because nobody's on the street. Well, guess what? In Chicago and New York and other places, murders are actually up in the last month, which is stunning. And what it suggests mm-hmm. is that when you let people out of prison or out of jail, some of them go on to commit crime. Not to mention that there's like real economic dislocation. Not to mention the fact that a lot of the cops have called in sick. Um, you know, whether or not they're symptomatic, they've called in sick. And so the police are under strain. And so uh, amazingly, crime is rising. You know, the one one of the few sort of positive side effects we might have expected from this lower crime actually doesn't seem to be happening. So one last thing, and then I got to go. 
you know, what you point. So I, I don't like to impute negative motives to people or maybe sure. more accurately. I think we all have negative and positive motives. Right. I think we all are driven by ego or money or, you know, good things and bad things to some extent. And the best you can do as a, you know, as a person is try to be aware of what's driving you. Um, but, but, it, it, but so, so to me, when, you know, when I think, when I say about somebody, oh, well, you know, it looks like that person, I mean, I don't usually say it this openly, but you know, this person might be enjoying having the ear of, uh, you know, of world leaders, like, well, that's human nature, right? Here's what I'll say. It's pretty clear that people in the media were genuinely panicked a month ago. And you can just go back and look at the tweets from all from the Italy. people who lived in Brooklyn. It, Italy really did uh, that, well, yeah. Italy, but, but in New York City, right? The media is sure. very New York-centric, yep. and New York got hit hard. So I'm willing to give everybody a pass. You know, if you were living uh, you know, a few miles from Elmhurst Hospital and you were you know, seeing the refrigeration trucks and you were hearing the sirens, it was a crazy time for you. Exactly. But now it's a month later, and now it's clear that the hospitals elsewhere are pretty much empty. And even in New York, this is more or less passed. In fact, this morning in the New York Post, the chairman of emergency medicine at a major hospital in the Bronx said the lockdown should be ended. I don't know how you can ask for more than that. So, yep, I saw that. New so York the Post, fact that yep. these people, right, it's an amazing piece, right? Now, I don't know what to make of the way these people are behaving. It's as if they don't want to acknowledge reality. It's as if, I, I don't know whether it's just that they don't like Trump and they now view this as a way to hurt him. I don't know. I'm a political independent I, I don't really like getting involved in the politics of this, although to some extent now we all have to. Sure. But, but when you say like, that there's a darkness here, I mean, it's, it's harder and harder to argue that point. It really is. When I started out with that YouTube video, it wasn't the guy's own video. It was the local ABC affiliate. It was transparent. Everyone could see it. You could debate it. Why would you take that down? That's right. Why would you take that down? But, I, I don't know. And, you know, Twitter is okay. Like, Twitter, Twitter's been pretty good. Uh, the radio has been pretty good. Some of the, you know, podcasts like yours have been good. But Facebook and YouTube, there's a platform problem there. They are really, they really have their thumb on the scale, and they're not allowing open debate. And given the importance of those places, um, you know, and given, by the way, the amount that Facebook benefits in a world where nobody can meet, um, I think it's a real problem, and it needs to be discussed. Well, there you have it, folks. Very well said. Alex Berenson. Go to at Alex Berenson on Twitter to follow him. Thanks so much, and definitely keep us updated, all right? Thanks, Daniel. Keep working. And, folks, we're, we're going to continue bringing on different voices, different backgrounds. You know, we had doctors. This guy's a reporter. But, again, you know, reporters – that are good at what they do, really looked at, look at a fact pattern. He is an independent, and once in a while you'll find people that worked in the legacy media that take a different turn, and he, he really is an independent type of guy, and I wanted to get a balanced view, and that's the thing. You know, he was careful to distinguish between what I think we already know and what is still is still out there, but, I, but the overall big picture, and that's what he was telling me, not to get involved in some of the smaller things. I'm always inclined to want to try to find, you know, just find the truth about everything, you know, and there's still a lot we don't know. But what we do know is that at this juncture, it makes no sense to do what they're doing. Um, and, and I think he's right. People were legitimately panicked. I think it was a mixture of Italy, the models, and they saw what was going on in New York City. But again, keep in mind, even in New York City, 
even in New York City, they just updated the serology test yesterday, and it's up to 25% of New York City has the antibodies. That's a quarter. That's a massive denominator. So if my math is correct, that puts the fatalities at 0.55, which is a little bit higher than we're seeing elsewhere. But remember, they didn't count anyone under 18, which I think everyone agrees the fatality rate's going to be the lowest. So if you throw that into the mix, it would be even lower as a percentage of people who got it. And then there are questions about the numerator. I mean, you're going to see my article today. It's insane. It's utterly insane. I think we played the clip on the show yesterday. But this uh, health director of Illinois, it's utterly insane. There's, there's, there's nothing more to talk about. Anyone with, quote, COVID-positive diagnosis listed as COVID death, even if they have an alternate cause of death. I mean, here is her quote. I just want to be clear in terms of the definition of people dying of COVID. So the case definition is very simplistic. It means that the, at the time of death, it was a COVID-positive diagnosis. So that means that if you were in hospice and had already been given a few weeks to live, and then you also were found to have COVID, that would be counted as a COVID death. It means that technically, even if you died of a clear alternate cause, but you had COVID at the same time, it's still listed as a COVID death. So everyone who is listed as a COVID death doesn't mean that that was the cause of the death but that they had COVID at the time of death, I hope that's helpful. I mean, kudos for being honest. She just let it out. She wasn't even asked about that and and gave it up. This was, uh, what's her name? Dr. Azik um, was at the conference with Governor Pritzker last week. And that's a big deal. Again, I I think the overwhelming majority of the 55,000 are certainly from that. But that makes a difference if it's thirty-five or 40000 and not 55000 And that further lowers it. Remember, I mean, Alex was just talking about a couple minutes ago that even those that prima facie seem to have um, respiratory symptoms and, and die, even then it's not necessarily from that because it does overlap to a certain extent with other respiratory illnesses that even if you believe the overwhelming majority are from COVID, it's not like the other stuff stops. It's got to be whatever baseline of weekly deaths we have in April and March from those has to be included. But what she was saying was even if someone is totally heart disease or, or, or anything, and of course they have COVID because a lot of people now we know have it. It's not this rare thing. Oh, another person tested positive and another person. Well, yeah, massive percentage of the population in New York City, it's up to 25%. And it, it seems to keep going higher. So we still don't have a clear answer of why New York is worse. Meaning, as a percentage, the numbers will be higher because it's more densely populated, so more people got it. But why would the case fatality rate be a little bit higher? Maybe twice as high as other places? We still don't have an answer. We still don't have an answer yet. Um, you know, is there a mutation? Is there a different strain? We don't really have clear evidence of that. Some people want to grumble about that. Um, but that wouldn't change anything. That wouldn't change anything we're talking about. It doesn't change anything. 
that what we are doing now is counterintuitive and makes zero sense. Makes zero sense. So my article has just been posted about this Illinois health director. Make sure you take a look at that. The jailbreak is continuing in earnest. Just terrible, terrible stories. Sex offenders, rapists being let out of prison. We have gun felons. You know, while we all watched that guy in Denver walking down the street peacefully with a with a gun, he had a concealed carry license, wasn't threatening anyone. He was manhandled by the police. Meanwhile, they're letting go gun felons. And then on the congressional side, remember McConnell said we had, had enough spending? Well, now they're on to the state bailout. And Trump's going to go along with it, and they'll sign it. You know, an interesting point Thomas Massey made today is that people are wondering, well, what happened to the debt limit? We most certainly have reached the debt limit, right? Well, guess what? I first warned about this about six, seven years ago when they started doing this. So they started unconditionally raising the debt ceiling whenever they needed. Then, maybe it was in 2014, 2013, they started a new phenomenon of not raising the debt limit. So like, let's say it would be at $20 trillion. So, okay, you could go till $22 trillion. No, they would say we are suspending the debt ceiling until this date in time in two years from now. So it's not like I'm giving you two trillion more debt where you'd say, okay, I'll get a trillion a year. It's two years worth of all you could eat. So if we're going to add five trillion, well, you're not going to run up against a debt ceiling and have to have another Democratic vote on that and hopefully debate the merits of doing that. So that's going to continue. But on the flip side, there clearly is momentum. I mean, the science is becoming very clear. Again, there's still micro questions about it that we don't know about the virus. But um, it's becoming clear that there is no way we could have prevented that stuff, especially when we did nothing. And to go from doing nothing to lockdown, there's no value add. You're just going to have so much collateral damage, so much weakening of people's immune systems, and you're not going to protect the people that need to be protected because a you know you're gonna drag this out longer b you're gonna chew up too many resources that need to be allocated to the sick and vulnerable c as alex mentioned a lot of those very people are the same people that are gonna wind up dying from other things because they're they're vulnerable they're vulnerable to to covid but they're also vulnerable to heart attacks and strokes and whatever else, hypertension. And, you know, there's one thing to be careful if you're older and, and, and especially older and unhealthy to try to avoid going to indoor places with other people. But you don't want to create such a degree of panic that they, they'll just die at home and won't go to the ER. And that's clearly, clearly happening at this point. That's clearly, clearly happening. But again, I wanted you guys to get a balanced perspective. You know, someone who's not a lifelong conservative, he's an independent New York Times reporter, um, and we're going to have different different voices. If you want um, me to bring on other people, let me know. Um, there's a lot going on in the courts. Oh my gosh, getting screwed. You know, isn't it funny how we can never get standing, very few, to sue our life, liberty, and property is being taken away without due process, but somehow... We have everyone but Alito. I mean, I don't know what happened to Thomas on this rule 
that insurance companies now have a right to $11 billion in risk harder bailouts of money Congress never appropriated. So they created the program, and it was and and look, I mean, it was it was their fault. They made a policy gamble and went along with a program that was stupid. And now they're like, well, you owe us the money. Well, Congress never appropriated the funding. And in fact, explicitly in 2014, 2015, they had riders banning that because that was, you know, Republicans promised to defund it, but they didn't. But instead, they they defunded risk corridors. Marco Rubio pushed that at the time, if you remember. So they actually had a rider that downright prohibited it. So now a court, a court could go and affirmatively demand the power of the purse. They have the power of the purse. They could appropriate funding now. So the courts are silent when it comes to their core duty of protecting individual unalienable rights. Just putting a negative. Don't find the guy. Don't imprison him. Don't take away his property. A shield, not a sword. That a court could affirmatively call for dictate other powers of other branches of government. But again, a broken clock is right twice. Our broken system of government is wrong every single time on every single outcome. So that's what that. There's another thing I want to go over at some point that um, you have Colorado, Nevada, uh, California, Oregon, and Washington State are creating a Western States pact. The last time I checked, states can't create their own pacts. It's funny. We're back to the Articles of Confederation now. Um, again, another example of something perfectly backwards so lots of different content we're going to have um, on the crime side the civil liberty side the, the science virology side let me know what you want to cover again sign up at our Harwood Citizen uh, Sanctuary Facebook we need a sanctuary for everyday Americans gotta run now getting a lot of calls here but till tomorrow stay safe and God bless